Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Who built the odd and apparently ancient stone structures on what came to be known as Mystery Hill in North Salem, New Hampshire? Can the site be reliably dated? Is it true that there is paranormal activity there? Greetings and welcome to the 601st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those pointed questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening we bring you one of America's strangest uh, places, and it's right here in New England, which is altogether strange in and of itself, but this is particularly weird. Uh, we welcome your calls this evening. The uh, numbers are 800-449-1240. That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. And 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor your emails. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. And don't forget about our Facebook page. Dennis Stone grew up at the 30-acre site now known as America's Stonehenge and has been involved with the site for at least for the last 55 years, as have a variety of researchers. Dennis is also a full-time airline pilot, and he has traveled extensively around the world to ancient sites in Europe and North America. He has appeared on numerous television and radio shows since 1970. When not captaining a commercial aircraft, Dennis can usually be found at America's Stonehenge, located on a lovely rural hilltop in North Salem, New Hampshire. Dennis's wife, Pat, manages the day-to-day operations there, and their son, Kelsey, who is an engineer, has taken an interest in ongoing research. The website, StonehengeUSA.com. Now, on a personal note, I knew Dennis's father, the late Robert E. Stone. Bob purchased the site, I believe, uh, Dennis will correct me if I'm wrong, in the mid-1950s, and later opened it up to the public as Mystery Hill. Like myself, Bob was a U.S. Coast Guard veteran, although he was discharged the year I was born, so we didn't know him in the service. And in 1964, uh, Bob founded the New England Antiquities Research Association, or NERA, of which I was an officer in the early 1980s, and that's how I knew Bob. So I have visited America's Stonehenge on a number of occasions. Dennis, I'm sure I met you at least once uh, at a NERA convention in the early 80s, and I believe Ben and I met your son at the site some years ago. So in a way, our families go back a few years. Oh, good evening, um, Paul and Ben. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I guess we crossed paths a few times, and I didn't realize you knew my dad. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I have a lot of good memories of him. I didn't know him. For, I didn't know him. Well, we weren't uh, best friends, but, uh, you know, we worked together in NERA, and uh, I respected, uh, respected him very much. Yeah, NERA just had their uh, 50th anniversary last year, so it was a, it was a big, uh, they had a couple of meetings last year, and it was a kind of a big anniversary for them, so it's been a long time. Well, that's, uh, a, that's amazing. Oh, wow, congrats. Yeah, I was, uh, I was the secretary, mainly because nobody else wanted to do it <laughs> in the early 80s, you know how that is. So, uh, so I got involved that way. But um, Ben has, uh, is going to start us off on our questions. Indeed, I didn't say welcome to Beyond the Paranormal. So Dennis Stone, welcome to Beyond the Paranormal. So why don't we start by describing the site and its stone features. And if uh, any of our listeners here have access to a computer or mobile device, there are pictures at StonehengeUSA.com. So why don't you describe the site for us? Well, it's a uh, uh, complex of stone structures that covers about the main site, we call it, uh, covers about one acre, surrounded by about 30 acres of uh, standing stone. The uh, main site has um, chambers, stone chambers, cells. It has a whole complete uh, network of underground drains, storm drains that were engineered to keep the place dry. Um, it has um, pothings, and it has a very large table. It's one of the main features. It's about 9,000 pounds, kind of shaped like a bell. And um, it has a rectangular groove carved on the surface of it. 
it sits on four stone legs and it's adjacent to the uh, oracle chamber the uh, largest chamber still at the uh, on the complex um, and uh, it's, it has a uh, very very large rocks that make up the walls there's uh, vertical slabs or orthostaps that make up some of those chambers and the chambers have very very large stone roofs some of them weigh in up to about 10 tons um, these large roof slabs were taken off the bedrock originally by the original builders and they're not really typical of uh, colonial, post-colonial uh, design sites for houses, barns, carriage houses, uh, any type of, uh, you know, colonial, post-colonial uh, construction that you normally see. It's quite different than that, and a lot of work went into actually designing the site. Um, but um, you can walk through this, the chambers today. Um, most of them are accessible. There's one that we're going to be working on this fall that has the uh, about an eight-ton roof slab that fell in some time in the past, and we're going to get to that chamber um, and hopefully get the roof slab out of it, and then they can excavate the floor, which has never been done. But we have found three stone uh, inscriptions in that structure. We have three cabin datings from that structure, and we're going to look and see if it also has an underground drain because the drains are really good. Some of them run 75 feet in length, large enough, some of them for a uh, small child to crawl through, actually, and a lot of artifacts have been found in some of the drains in the past. But we think the site's probably a religious site, uh, not a living place, not a habitat site. Um, due to the, uh, the type of construction that it is, um, also the amount of artifacts that came out of the uh, site over the last 80 years that people have been working on it. Um, we have found actually thousands of pieces of artifacts, but not the quantity that you find at a living place or a habitat site. So we think it was used for religious purposes, probably, you know, it was used for burials, possibly weddings. Um, but the astronomical calendar up there aligns with the, the quarter days which are uh, four seasons, and then cross-quarter days, which are days in between, we have lunar alignments and we have uh, star alignments also, like something like 24 star alignments um, with the standing stones on the, on the hill. Um, as you mentioned, we're uh, just in southern New Hampshire, about 40 miles from Boston. We're about 18 nautical, about 21 nautical, uh, 21 statute miles from the Atlantic Ocean, and a lot, one of the largest rivers in New England, the Merrimack River, goes right uh, within four miles of our site, and there's a tributary from the Merrimack that passes right the, by the bottom of our hill called the Spigot River. So um, we're accessible by water uh, from the ocean up to about uh, Havel, Massachusetts, and then uh, between Havel and our site's about four miles of uh, swamps, ponds, and rivers. So at one time we think you probably could have navigated within a mile of our site, actually. Hmm. So what is known for certain about the origin and uh, history of America's Stonehenge? Well, um, we have carbon dated it. Uh, starting in 1966, we took 16 carbon datings from that time up to about 1995. Uh, Geochrome Laboratories in Cambridge, Mass. did some of the tests, and uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute did some of the tests also, uh, the carbon dating. And we think the site dates to about 4,000 years from the radiocarbon dating. The oldest one we have on the main site dates to about 2,000 B.C. And we also uh, the astronomical alignments in 1973 through 1977. Uh, we paid the surveyor um, as we went along and raised rev uh, We had to get money to do it, actually. So as we raised money to do this, it took about four years. So we'd come in survey, then he'd go back to his office, do other work, come back a few months later, do more surveys. So it took about four years to get the uh, astronomical alignment surveyed and the main site surveyed. Once they did that, they sent it to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the results were that um, they said that these stones, 
Scanning stones were used for astronomical purposes. They don't work today. The Earth's tilt is slow, uh, very slowly changing, and you'd have to go back to about 1800 B.C., uh, almost 4,000 years ago, about the same time as that cabin dating we had. And so we think the site was built about 4,000 years ago. Um, and we also have a dating on the site um, near the North Stone. And that doesn't date the site. It doesn't date the walls. It doesn't date the North Stone, but it's in the vicinity of the North Stone. And it was found uh, during the 1990s, and they ran about 90 shovel test pits across the entire 110 acres. And they found some interesting uh, features, fire pits, the wigwam site. In this case, it was a fire pit, and dated it to 7,300 years old, so 7,300 years old plus or minus about 200 years, middle archaic time period. And uh, it shows human activity on the hill going back that early. But we think the site was built a few thousand years later, around 4,000 years ago. Okay, we, Ben, if I may just work a qu uh, point in here. Go for uh, it. I just wanted to ma make, the, uh, make the point that when it comes to carbon dating, you're talking about radiocarbon dating, right? Uh, it was radiocarbon-14 dated, yes. Okay, uh, that, that you can't carbon date rocks, so it's not like you, you know, it was, but, but you carbon date organic material that is found at the site. I just wanted to clarify that uh, so people would understand. And uh, could, you, could you explain a little bit how carbon dating works? Yeah, you can carbon date anything that was living, bone, shell, uh, wood, uh, charcoal. In uh, 1950, Dr. Libby, I believe, won, uh, I think it was a Nobel uh, Award for that. Uh, 1950, uh, radiocarbon dating has been used since that time period. And um, it actually dates, well, as, you're, as you're living, you're taking, you know, you eat plants, plants taken uh, air. And I'm not sure if you have all the physics in, involved with it, with it but... Um, the um, carbon dating go back to about 50,000 years. They call the half-life when half the uh, radiation is depleted is about 6,000 years. And every 6,000 years after that, half the radioactivity decays. It, it's reduced. And they can actually measure that, like with a very sophisticated Geiger counter. But they've also used mass, what do they call mass uh, acceleration spectrometry. And that actually, I've been talked to, uh, I talked to a physicist who actually was working on this, uh, a couple of samples that would hold for us. Because actually that process, they actually count the carbons of 14, I guess in carbon 12 or whatever, it's a ratio. And it's more accurate. They can use one thousandth the sample for particle acceleration um, for that, what they call it, mass test, which we had three different datings done, two on a wigwam and one on another part of their site, which was interesting. So that's actually a more modern version of the carbon dating. Uh, you're right. You can't, you can't date the rock with carbon 14, but you can take... Uh, we had a piece of root dated, and yeah. that dated to about 1690 A.D. It was from a pine tree that had grown through that chamber in ruins that we're going to do the project on. And the root had penetrated right through the north wall. You don't build walls around trees, 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 grow through walls. And in the 1930s, when the first research um, was going on the site, they saw this pine tree. It was very decayed. They couldn't do a tree ring dating or dendrochronology. They actually... Uh, but they estimated its age by its state of decay in its diameter to about 16-something A.D. Uh, that put it before the Patty family. And the Patty family were uh, shoemakers. There were five generations of shoemakers. Now, were they the original recorded European owners of the site? Yeah, they actually they bought it from the Havel. Uh, we were part of Havel, Massachusetts at the time, and they yeah. bought it from the Havel proprietors, I believe. Uh, 1734, Seth Patty bought the property. And he may have actually built a house up there. We're not sure whether it was he or his son, Seth Jr., or Jonathan. There's a little confusion there. But Seth Sr., uh, 1734, 16 years before the town of Salem was incorporated, 
um, he bought the property, and he was a shoemaker, third generation. And his son Seth, even when he, he or his son Seth could have built the first house, we know Jonathan lived there, and he got the land in a quick claim from his mother in 1820. And he may have lived there before that, but he actually ended up owning it at that time in 1820. And he, uh, again, was a shoemaker. He was an abolitionist involved with the Underground Railway. Um, and Wilbur Seibert, who wrote the Underground of Ohio, New York, and Massachusetts, writes about our site in the Underground of Massachusetts. And he talks about a Mr. Hussey, a Mr. Poor, and a third gentleman with a horse named Nelly bringing slaves to our place in Chaucheen yeah. Village, you know, okay. at night very quietly, you know. All right. Um, oh, sorry. I just uh, wanted to wanted to mention one or, one or two other things, or, or ask you one or two other things here, um, just to sort of to point out that, that what you've mentioned about the uh, the site and the carbon dating that is a, le- a legitimate, well accepted scientific technique as far as dating organic material is concerned. So there's no question about that. Uh, the questions that have arisen, and it's my job to play devil's advocate. When I was involved in Nero, when you, in your dad's time there, I was. Uh, what, there were we'd always kind of laughed that there were the true believers, and there were the people like ourselves who were, who were kind of skeptical and you know wanted to see more proof about the what 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 is known as the pre-Columbian settlements or temple sites or whatever in New England particularly because that was what our the focus of the organization was on, and um, we we always were kind of amazed that anything we didn't understand had to be ceremonial in nature right it was like. Star Trek, what everything we don't understand is always called a thing, or oh, yes. something like that. But in any case, uh, we, the uh, the things that were carbon dated, unless you can correct me on this, Dennis, is that were were things that could have been used by Native Americans. But but there's there's no evidence that Native Americans in New England, and and they have told me this themselves, at least that they know of, ever built something like America's Stonehenge. It probably would have been. It, it seems more similar to European structures, and perhaps you can say more about that. How how does it compare with structures that are found in Europe, if it is as old as we suspect? Um, yeah, there's three theories. You know, the Patty family, of course, is somebody around the time of the Patty family building the site, Native American, and of course European. And the fourth one's kind of developing now that maybe Native Americans were involved with the site and they were visited by Europeans, you know, there was contact. And that was a time 4,000 years ago when the um, couple, two different traditions ended. Um, Middle Archaic with Red Paint Indians in this country yeah. and the Laurentian tradition both came to a stop 4,000 years ago. Something changed. Something changed in those cultures. And uh, just coincidentally or not, the, our museum, I mean, I'm sorry, the American Stonehenge was dated to that time period. So after that, it became the Woodland period and, and an introduction of uh, ceramics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we have That's on true. that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the, um, the site has uh, similar structures, uh, not only um, with New, other New England sites, and they number about 800 from Canada all the way down to the Mid-Atlantic states. 800? Oh, yeah, about 800, yeah, about 800 sites. Uh, um, and these are um, in NERA.org, as you mentioned NERA earlier, and you can go in there and you can go state by state, and they're in Canada too, so you know, province by province. And uh, the president of uh, NERA now is out of um, Halifax, Canada, Terry DeVoe. But there's sites from all the way in Canada all the way down through New England into the Mid-Atlantic states. My dad, when he first got involved in 1955, and he heard about this on a radio show, just like we're talking right now on WBZ in Boston, oh, yeah. he, um, he only knew about maybe uh, 15 sites, uh, Raymond, New Hampshire, Windham, New Hampshire, 
Andover, Massachusetts, that kind of thing. You know, there were sites that were known even back in the 1930s by Mr. Goodwin, the original uh, uh, person that did the research on the site. But as time went by through the 60s and 70s and on to today, they found about 800 of them. There is a similarity between our site and some of the structures found throughout New England, but there is a very similar type um, of size, shape, and orientation set of an architectural features to, from our site to Western European sites. And Stonehenge, is, you know, everybody knows it's, it is an amazing site. Uh, we've been to it several times, but it's not the only site. There's about 50,000 megalithic sites throughout Western Europe. Um, Ireland alone had over 2,000. Yeah. And structures like our V-Hut, um, when I used to sit there in the early 70s, I remember sitting there waiting for visitors just to answer questions uh, on the site, and I looked at that chamber and I go, why is that thing facing southwest? Everything else seems to be north, south, east, and west. As you found out from the survey work, there were true north, east, west, um, north, and south. But that structure uh, runs southwest. It looks kind of towards the winter solstice sunset. And uh, when, when I began um, you know, studying and reading more about this, I came across a book that had the witch tombs of Ireland, and one thing I noticed was the similar shape, kind of a V-shape, and size was sort of similar to the V-hut, but they're orientated towards the southwest. So size, shape, and orientation on both sides of the ocean as far as that particular structure, the V-hut, and over there they call them wedge tombs, and they think they were used as tombs. Um, next to our V-hut is actually a chamber called the uh, East-West Chamber because it runs true east and west. And um, in Europe, in Holland, and uh, Northwest Ireland and in France, which I visited, um, I visited Ireland, but I didn't get to see the which the um, the uh, what they call gallery graves over there. I haven't yeah. been to the Netherlands, but in France, when I was in Karnak, I got to see a, one of these chambers, and it looks so much like our East-West chamber. And it, they run east and west, true out of true north, and the size over there is between 30 to 60 feet. They vary in length. But it looks so much like our east-west chamber, and it would be, if it was on the other side of the ocean, say, oh, there's one of those gallery graves, you know. So there are some really very close comparisons between our structures and structures over there. Okay. But now, uh, th- that being said, I just want to point out that uh, there are some opinions that things like Mystery Hill and the Newport Tower here in Rhode Island and other uh, structures of that kind were built by farmers and everything. But in the case of, of America's Stonehenge, I, ju- I just personally, and, and I'm under another hat, I'm a historian, and I just don't see New England farmers building anything like that. Uh, I, it just, you know, it, it kind of galls me to think that, you know, if we assume it's Phoenicians or Iberians or whoever, and uh, there's a very interesting book by Dr. Barry Fell, who uh, is, a do- is or was a doctor, but he was a doctor of marine biology <laughs> writing about New England antiquities, which is fine. I mean, I, I don't have a doctorate, and I write about it. Um, I'm just saying that there are other opinions, and we, we do need to point that out in the interest of balance. However, uh, personally, I, I, I have to repeat that I just cannot imagine New England farmers building anything like that structure. However, the first mention of it that I'm aware of, and Dennis, correct me if I'm wrong, was I believe was it 1907? Or, or 19, I think it was 1907, in a local history um, of the area. And are there any literary references or anything, any other official references and records before that? I'm not saying it was built in 1907, but, but uh, w- what is the history of, of people reporting that this site exists? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, it was 1907 was uh, Edgar Gilbert's uh, History of Salem. And that's actually, it, yeah. He kind of, yeah, he kind of finished up the book, and... Um, 
was actually two other gentlemen uh, that actually started the history of Salem, and they both passed away. So I think Hickory Gilbert picked it up, and they started it, I think, in the 1890s. And actually, Hickory Gilbert actually put the book together after they passed away in 1907. And it talks about the Patty family. It talks about a wonderful but wild place among soft pines and rough boulders where weird tales may be woven. And this might be a couple other references to the site a little bit earlier than that. Um, I know my uh, uncle, he was up this, he's 93, he was a pilot in World War II, got shot down in the oh, wow. 17 years. And he's still alive. Thank but, you. Uh, yeah, and he worked, he worked for Raytheon and Sanders Lockheed after that, and he worked out in uh, rocket flood testing out in California after that for the, wow. um, with the Air Force, the Army Air Corps. He joined and it became the Air Force. But uh, so he was uh, really involved with electronics and all of that during most of his life. And for, for a while, he worked for my dad at the museum for a couple of years when he was laid off between government contracts. And he did a lot on the astronomical work. But the other day, he was up, uh, oh, it was a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that his uh, grandmother, her last name was Gage, and she used to uh, go to the site in the 1890s. I wish we had photographs for being up there. Oh, but wow, yeah. She used to play up in the site. Um, but you're right. The first really uh, thing we really have is by um, Edgar Gilbert. But there's some other references, and it's in my dad in uh, David Galsworth, but there might be some other references going back a little bit vague, kind of hard to prove you're talking about our site. Sure. But, uh, so, you know, um, historically, yeah, about 1907, I think. And then Mr. Goodman comes along in the 1930s yeah. and begins this work on the site. And uh, his initial impression was it was a Viking site, and he uncovered all the brush, debris, and trees and everything. I uh, said, no, it's not Viking. You thought it was an Irish Kobe Monk Monastery. Yeah. He died in 1950, still believe in it. So everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an idea. But we really don't know who built the site. We put forth the best evidence we have, you know, with all the research. And we don't know if we're right or wrong. Don't think it's a uh, historic site. Uh, there, you know, the uh, radio cabin diddings. Uh, what happened was uh, at the Chamber Ruins, when they dug down in 1967 and got the root and dated that, 69, they found charcoal layer horizon next to the wall. Undisturbed, they dated that to 3,000 years old. A little lower, they found some more charcoal in 1971, and they dated that yeah, to 2000 BC. Uh, in that mix, there they found hammerstone, they found uh, rubbing stones, they found stone scrapers, stone spallings where somebody had been striking stone, a little flakes of stone had come off. That's how they actually shaped these big stones using a technique called percussion flaking. And below all of that, they found the bedrock had been removed. So what they did first is remove this big slab of bedrock. We're really not sure how they got these, the bedrock separated. And they would use this bedrock for the walls and for the roof. But what they did is took the bedrock off, then they built the wall, and then very slowly sediment builds up. And then you have a fire from around 4,000 years ago, either man-made or natural. Then you have another fire, uh, and it's all undisturbed. All the strata was undisturbed. Nobody had fortunately got in there and disturbed that, you know, turned it over with a shovel or a plow or something like that. So, you know, you have a wall being built, and then you have this stuff going on with fires, and then you have the tools left behind, Stone Age tools, and then you have a tree root going through in 1690. So it's kind of like relatively dating it, but you're dating the charcoal directly, but the position of the charcoal to the chamber, you know, undisturbed and everything that helped to date that structure, and it was with that mix of stone tools. Okay, well now I, I just I have to play devil's advocate and just point out that the uh, cynics would point out that, that you you know that, that this is this information helps tourism, and that it's in your interest to have it be weird. However, I have to say my personal opinion is is that uh, I think you're you're more right than wrong. I mean I I have been familiar with it not not as familiar as you you grew up there, but I've been familiar with it for for many years and uh, it just doesn't seem to belong in the New England landscape. But that being said. 
uh, Dennis, what is your personal opinion about what the site was used for? Do you believe it was a temple or ceremonial or an astronomical calculator of some kind or alignments, as you say? Or what, what say you on what uh, you really think it was for, regardless of who built it? Right. Um, it does seem to be a, a temple site, and again, it could have been burial because of those two tombs, tomb-like structures I mentioned. Um, in New England, the soil eats up bones within a few hundred years, and, a, and maybe up to a thousand, so we wouldn't likely find any bones from that time period. I think it's a temple site. It's on top of a very large hill. It does have a similarity to some of the megalithic sites I've seen in Europe. Um, and they were, they were actually, over in Europe, they built their temples out of stone on high places. They lived in hide, wood, or bog kind of structures, which, of course, they don't last more than, you know, a few decades, and they just, they disappear, you know, into the soil. So the habitat sites are harder to find than their religious sites. But most of the sites of Western Europe, those 50,000, are, are in fact religious sites. Uh, Scarabray in the Orkneys was an exception because they uh, they didn't have the wood to build the uh, their their habitat out of. So they built that out of stone, and then it was covered over. And it dates to around I think 4,500 years. It was covered over at some time in the past by ocean covering it with sand and debris. And it was, I think, in the 1800s, another huge storm came along and uncovered Scarabray, and it was like a time capsule. It was perfectly preserved, and it was, in fact, a living place. Yeah, and, true. you know, you find all the things that you would find in a living place. But our site seems to be more of a religious kind of uh, site due to the amount of artifacts, due to the design of the structures themselves. They're not really conducive for living, you know, purposes. Um, it just doesn't seem to be that, you know. Yeah. Well, I want to point out before we take our break that uh, th there is a conception uh, on the part of most people, that the separation between Europe and America was virtually absolute, at least before the Vikings. And the Vikings, everybody knows the Vikings came, built settlements in Newfoundland and perhaps even in New England, uh, but didn't stay, may have been chased out by the natives or whatever. Uh, but certainly Columbus came, and everybody knows all this. However, there is more than ample evidence from a strictly archaeological and historical point of view, that there was not only coming and going across the ocean at a very early, sta early stage, but possibly even global trade. I'll say that again, global trade, and even, even in prehistoric times, and uh, so that which lends credibility to the idea that, that the sites such as America's Stonehenge may have been built uh, perhaps by uh, Europeans. So we're going to take our break at this point, and uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Dennis Stone, so stick with us. Lou Mandeville here to tell you the only place to get your local high school and college scores, as well as the Pats, Bruins, Celtics, and Sox is on my morning sports reports. And they are right here on ON 1240, Monday through Friday on the Morning Fun Show. Well, that was a quick one indeed. And I uh, just wanted to point out some of the charities Ben and I have adopted on the show. We'll tell you more about them in our announcement section. But USACares.org, doing great things for veterans and their families. Canadian Veterans Advocacy for our friends to the north. And Youth Mentoring Connection, youthmentoring.org in Los Angeles, doing fantastic things for young people. Tony LeRae doing some great work out there in some of the at-risk neighborhoods there. So let's get back to our conversation with Dennis Stone of America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire. And uh, Ben has a question. Indeed I do. So what are the artifacts you found? You meant you've sort of alluded to the fact that you found artifacts. But what kind of artifacts are we talking about here? Yeah, we have uh, both uh, historic uh, during the Paddy time, all sorts of artifacts from that time period, starting in the uh, 1700s 
1700s right through the uh, into the uh, 1800s and right up to today actually but we also found hammer stones rubbing stones stone spallings uh, stone scrapers stone hoes arrowheads uh, stone knives um, cups stone cups uh, fire starting stone uh, we have a lot of these in display in our museum and we also found pottery too the pottery um, both on the site some historic pottery but also prehistoric pottery uh, one of the one of the neat features of the hill is a glacial cliff shelter on the west side of the hill overlooking that Spigot River. And in the 1950s, they were out there clearing it, and they were excavating, and they found pottery um, pieces. And then some of them were put back together, and it turns out to be a very large bowl. It was middle woodland period pottery. They dated it stylistically. They didn't have that. Um, they, did, they have a thermal luminescence testing today and some other types of more modern testing, which they didn't have back then. So we had that on display in our building. And... Um, we have uh, stone axes, we have celts, stone celts, um, and uh, so we have all sorts of tools, utensils, possible, a couple of weapons, possibly, um, both, you know, from the historic and the prehistoric period. Um, so there's actually hundreds and hundreds of artifacts that have been found on the site. Are any of those, uh, like, European artifacts? I mean, do they re resemble, or are they more Native American? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, the pottery, actually, some people felt it looked like Western European-style pottery. And um, that was just an opinion. I don't know if it, yeah. you know, that's not... Of course, a pot is a pot, I suppose, you know. Yeah, yeah. the styling, the way they actually, you know, they, the way they actually created it, they would actually make, like, a, a robot that play, you know, they mix it with pottery grit, you know, or, yeah. uh, and they make a cord out of it, and then they coil it, coil it, and then they paddle it, and they make a design, and... You know, before the wheel was invented, you know, and potteries tended to be a little bit thicker than when the pottery wheel, and not as nice, nice and even when you had the pottery wheel, it had a much more, you know, rounded, uh, you know, design to it. It was uh, thinner, and that's a little bit more modern pottery. Um, but, you know, it's kind of hard to tell with the axe, stone axes and the celts and yeah. rubbing stones, you know, who actually um, used these or made these or traded these. Um, but uh, we have found inscriptions, too, and... As you mentioned, Barry Fell from Harvey got involved in 1975. He passed away about 20 years ago. Yeah. And he had a group called the Epigraphic Society with about 1,200 members. He yeah, I knew him, uh, too. Yeah. Yeah, he had about three books and many, many publications. But he felt that the old world was being visited by the new world well before Columbus and the Vikings. That's very possible. Uh, North, Central, and South America. Uh, Phoenician writing, Libyan writing, and Celtic writing. He identified at our site as well as other places uh, in New England and even down in Brazil. Uh, 1872, some slaves were actually cleaning something and found um, Phoenician writing down there. And on the, I think it's P-A-R-A, it's a Portuguese word, I guess, Pear River, something like that. Uh, oh. It was an interesting find at the time. Yeah. All the way up to Alberta, Canada, they found uh, some of these old world markings. So, uh, yeah. Well, I know Barry Fell's opinion was that uh, at, at the site, because uh, the, there were markings uh, at the site as well, uh, the, they were uh, what he referred to as Iberian Punic, or, or the, in the Ogham, am I pronouncing that correctly, the alphabet, I don't know if I remember how to pronounce that, Older yeah, no, or no. Ogham, yeah. Um, Iberian. Iberian that was the opinion of Dr. Barry Fell, the marine biologist turned uh, so it sounds It sounds like archaeological linguist as well. Something yeah. like that, yeah, it was <laughs> sort of an interesting term, but... Um, so how, how many inscriptions have been found? Uh, well, um, three of them were found, uh, two were found in 1964, and they, were, they wanted to uh, work on that chamber in ruins that I mentioned. They are trying to get the roof slab out, but they weren't. They didn't have the equipment, the resources, the time, so they didn't get the roof slab or the stone lintel out of there. 
but they did find two tablets with markings on them. They were about maybe a foot across, roughly triangular shape. They were on display in our museum for about 11 years as unknown markings. You know, we didn't know what they were. Yeah. Barry Bell um, saw them in 1975. He took them back to Arlington, Massachusetts, to his house and studied them, you know, and researched them and said, well, you have Iberian Punic on one of them. And it said that that structure was a sun temple dedicated to Baal on behalf of the Canaanites. And the other one he identified as Libyan, but it was kind of um, in bad shape, so he couldn't really get a complete translation of, you know, what they were trying to say with that stone. And the other one we found right after his visit, we started looking more. He had, you know, our eyes were looking everywhere. And we found what uh, looked like a tic-tac-toe board uh, in the paddy area where the paddy household was. It was in the wall that sort of supported the middle of his house, just sitting there. And, you know, we were down there cleaning, and all of a sudden one of us, uh, it was two of us, myself and another uh, guide, and he was also a researcher, and a, became one of the presidents of NERA eventually. But he, we saw it, and we said, gee, what is that? I wonder if that's something. So we showed it to him, and he identified it as a Celtic sun symbol. And then some more Celtic writing was found on the site also. Okay. Uh, 1967, in the entrance to that chamber in ruins, another gentleman was uh, looking, cleaning, or whatever, and he found another stone. It was more like a uh, design, and it, it looked like some sort of a Western European kind of um, artwork rather than you know Native American. So three tablets were found in that chamber, actually. Okay. Now, this may be, I want to get into the alleged paranormal happenings there, and Ben may not remember it, but he had kind of an experience there at one time. But before that, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what is going on around the site. One of the first things I noticed there was that, was that the hill is virtually perfectly round, unless I'm mistaken. And uh, on the top of it, of course, is this are these structures centering around what, what was referred to as the sacrificial table. Okay, we'll get into that in a minute. But I'm um, curious as to what other archaeological finds might have been made, or, or can they be made, because it's a rural area, but there are still you know, residences around there. Uh, one of the things we look for in paranormal work is what's going on around a site. A lot of people don't look for that. So one would think that perhaps if this was a temple site, there would have been at least within... A reasonable distance, uh, settlements of some kind, uh, villages even, or whatever. Has any archaeological work been done beyond the site in the area of North Salem or near the river or anything of that kind? Uh, and is that even possible given the, um, the the private property situation at this point? Well, um, yeah, the area is pretty well developed at home, so that becomes kind of problematic trying to go out there and find things. You know, yeah. Putting the house in disturbed soil, and then when they do the excavation and the backfilling, they don't necessarily recognize um, artifacts, you know, like, you know, arrowheads and yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Um, but on the Merrimack River, which I mentioned before, they have found uh, many, many different, uh, I think, archaic sites um, and uh, woodland period sites. And I have a book all about the Merrimack. And then on the tributaries, too, they have found things. I know one of the gentlemen had uh, some of the artifacts. He found underneath his house, and he thought they were anchors for windows, you know, the old, uh, with the string, the rope, you know, to help uh, counterbalance the window. But it turns out they were actually pestle and, uh, it was a pestle, I guess, for grinding purposes, and they were found underneath his house about four miles from our, our uh, museum, and we had them for many years on display, and then he wanted them back, you know, so we don't have them anymore. Yeah. So there have been some, uh, you know, things found in the area. Um, but, um, yeah, the New Hampshire Archaeological Society has more records than that. Um, you know, in the area. Uh, I was trying to think in Plastown, New Hampshire. Uh, there are more chambers near us. I know that. In Wyndham, New Hampshire, right down the street, there's two more chambers. Plastown has a chamber. I wasn't aware uh, of that. 
Yeah, Raymond, New Hampshire, um, Danville, uh, Newton, New Hampshire has. And these are big stone chambers, again, dry stone construction, no cement was used. And it appears that they built them using hammer stones uh, rather than using metal tools to, to quarry the stone. You know, when you go by a road where they've gone into the uh, uh, side of the hill and they've taken away the rods, you see all the drill marks, you know, the mud ones. But even um, our forefathers, you know, used something like that. They used a plug and feather. So they drill into the stones, they use a plug and feather, and they would split stones, you know, to the size and shape they wanted. But these stones on the site, uh, we had a master stonemason, he's still with us. He's a doctor of historical anthropology and a doctor of theology and a master stonemason. He goes to Scotland all the time, too. But he worked for the British government working on medieval and uh, megalithic sites doing restoration work up in Scotland back in the 70s and, and I guess in the 80s. Um, and he's going to work on that chamber and room project this year. But he said the stones were actually shaped using... Um, Stone Age technology. It was stone against stone. Yeah. All these large, you know, uh, the stones that were used for the astronomical alignments, for the wall slabs, for the sacrificial table, and all the roof slabs. And the roof slabs actually, some of them have lap joints. They actually cut along the uh, along the edge of it. They cut a 90 degree cut. Somehow we don't even know how they did that. You know, without modern tools, a 90 degree cut, like a lip, and that would that would actually go up against another roof slab, and they would interlock together. Yeah, I and, remember that, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. neat, you know, how they yeah. did that. And there's no, again, metal tool marks used on the original construction of the site. So that's just another piece of evidence. Where okay. we built this use Stone Age technology, not Metal Age technology. All right. Now. Well, I'd like to get into some of the... We, we haven't got much time left. We're burning up this hour. I'd like to get more into uh, some of the, the uh, paranormal or less paranormal aspects of things at the site. However, before we do that, why don't you take this moment to uh, talk about the your website uh when your opening hours are uh thing anything of that kind okay yeah we're open every day uh, except thanksgiving and christmas we open from nine in the morning till five in the evening last emissions at four so it takes about an hour some people spend two or three hours up there you know just uh, enjoying the site um and our website is stonehengeusa.com there's a email address info at stonehenge usa so if anybody has questions or comments or wants to, you know, talk to us, they can either send us a message or there's a phone number, too. They can leave a message on the, you know, or call us on the phone. And uh, but we're open, um, you know, we're open every day, so uh, okay. for those two days, yeah. All right, good. All right, um, what, before we get to the paranormal stuff, what what is the most recent study that has been done of the site and what did it entail? Uh, recent study, um Let's see. Um, hmm. Probably the shovel test pit study that was done uh, throughout the 1990s. We haven't had too much going on recently. Um, uh, the the, the, uh, shovel, the uh, shovel test pit study was about 90 holes across 110 acres, and that was done by the, pre the president of the New Hampshire Archaeological Society. In fact, she's going to be on this uh, new project with us this fall, mm -hmm. uh, doing the uh, archaeological work, that end of it. The masonry work will be done by that uh, master stonemason and his assistant. And um, But those shovel testaments are really interesting. Her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University for 30 years, and she was mapping the hill. Um, she was trying to determine the soil depth across the entire hill and also um, uh, looked for artifacts or features, and she found a workshop. The material came from, Marble, uh, from down near Marblehead, Massachusetts. It was rhyolite and they brought it up in there making tools. That could be a habitat site. It was about 1,000 feet from the main site to the south. And so it's a long way. That, that's kind of maybe back to the question you had, you know, around the area. Yeah. That might be a habitat site. They okay. didn't get in and do enough 
They didn't actually open it up and do a full-scale archaeological dig there. Unfortunately, they didn't have the time. But they did run about 90 holes. It took about nine years, eight or nine years to do that project. They found a wingworm site that dated to about 2,000 years old, two different fire pits, 1,700 and 2,000 years old. And they found the Grecian cooking still in the dirt there. And that's near a Pacamont area. And uh, across the Pacamont, we found a, um, a cooking, uh, an area where they were doing cooking. So they found two more coal smolts with a fire pit. And uh, so the whole area may have been a village down by a pot, yeah, uh, pot definitely. area, actually. Well, we kind of may be stopping by pretty soon. Uh, you got to be going here now on this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, as far as the paranormal is concerned, I know there have <clears throat> been a couple of ghost hunting groups and all these sorts of people who have been um, have come in occasionally with your permission and, and done some, some work and all this business. And uh, But I'm thinking back to, it uh, must have been, Ben, I think you must have been 9 or 10 years old. It's it been a while. I barely remember. It was before you were working with me. Yes. Uh, in the paranormal here, you were too young, and we went up. And I think that's the day we might have met your son, Dennis. And uh, we were. It was a weekday. Really, wasn't anybody around. And there were one or two areas where and I'm trying to think who was with us. One of your little friends was with us, and uh, there there were places you simply wouldn't go. Um, and I'm thinking one of the chambers was one. And I wish I could be more specific, but it was a long time ago. So just on that note, um, Dennis, what, um, have, what, what paranormal activities have been reported that you know about? and what gr- We don't have to name the groups, but how often have people come in and, uh, and done this? And I, I, I might add, as, as an addendum to the question, uh, we were actually, it was mentioned to us that we would, were, were going to be invited to come up and, and give a talk or something. It never happened, but um, what is the paranormal scenario, if any, at... America Stonehenge. Yeah, um, the first person I can think of that came up, there were people in the 60s, actually going a little bit early in the 60s, that took some of the crystals that came out of the, uh, the upper well, which we think was a mine shaft. This is no vein of, there's a vein of quartz crystals 23 feet at the bottom. My dad actually cleaned that out in 1963, but there's no vein of water. Only snow melt or rainwater goes into this, this, uh, this uh, well. At the bottom, in 1963, they found the quartz crystals. So they sent these out. Well, I think some went to California, you know, and then they came back. We got them back, fortunately. And they did, like, a reading. And I remember a couple different people were trying to uh, have a feeling of who built the site, what the people looked like, you know, and what time period it was. And I think they both came up with something similar, which is kind of weird. Unless they, unless they you know, got together and they, you know, they talked. To no, you together. never know. You never know. I mean, it's possible. But I try to describe the people as, you know, kind of, a little a darker complexion, kind of short, shorter, I guess, that kind of thing. But I don't know what to make of that. But 1974, um, he had a Pence Holzer, and uh, he came in. Pence Holzer? Uh, yeah, he came Very in. big name in uh, paranormal research. I don't know yeah. why I yeah, believe we everything him, and he it was said. Kind of, uh, you know, kind of cool to meet him because we had heard about him. And yeah. he came to our site. I never even and met him. He, yeah, and he brought a guest in. I know he wrote books like Ghosts I've Met or something Oh, he like wrote that. a million books, yeah. Yeah. Well, More than I, I have, yeah, and I think about 10 years ago, I think he was still alive 10 years ago on one of the Today Show, and they yeah. said he had him on there, you know, with a new new book he had. But mm-hmm. um, he brought in a psychic, and I'm going to say it could have been Sybil Leak, and I may be 100% wrong in that because I'm going back 41 well, she was years from ago. England, but, but that would be pretty impressive, those two together. Yeah, you know, that could've, it could have been. Um, and two years later, he came back, and he actually did the uh, Lennon Nimoy, the In Search of. He actually was on that. Oh, so, that's right. I remember you, that, yeah. Yeah, and if you Google that, you know, you yeah. can pull it up, and you can see what he says about the uh, site, and kind of his, his feeling. Um, 
what his psychic said, you know, it's actually quite good. It's it's all there today on the computer. It's amazing. All that. Uh, Rod Serling did this in 1970. You know, it was kind of cool. That was uh, in search of an NBC, but that's there too. So uh, yeah, Hans Holzer, and then we've had other psychics over the years come in, and uh, we do have paranormal events in October, and I think late September, and it's on Saturday night. And uh, and I used to work, when I worked for the airline, I usually work weekends, so I missed a lot of them. But I participated in one last year. I only got to see part of it because I was in the building watching that too. So I, um, um, but they bring up all sorts of equipment, you know, to actually, you know, you're probably, I'm sure you're familiar with all these cameras and they have these. Oh yeah, all the gadgets they don't understand. Yeah, yeah very yeah, familiar. Yeah. yeah. And I am no expert. It's not really my, you know, my my area, uh, my background or anything like that. But I find it interesting. They could show us these different types of lights they see on the camera and I don't know sounds and stuff like that and uh, there are different paranormal groups that have been up there they say there is some activity up there we know that 7,300 years ago somebody built a campfire up there yeah. they may have actually lived on the site so as far as people being around there were people there on the hill for thousands of years and they may have been there and then they weren't there for a while and then they came back so it may not be continuous but people go back to the middle archaic time period on the, on the hilltop, so yeah. it was paranormal activity, and this site was a burial site, a place of worship, maybe weddings, you know, that kind of thing, or sacrifice, I'm sure that, you know, some people have that sensitivity can detect that, you know. Well, that, that's that's one question. The uh, Some of the, the, the uh, smaller stone circles in in England, I've, I've been, in Ireland, I've been to one of some of those. I'm thinking particularly of the Scorehill Stone Circle in Devon in southwestern England, and there is a certain belief that a lot of people have, such as Paul Deverer, who in the Dragon Project, and, and myself and a few others, that these sites were built, and many of the churches that followed them are built on sites that were, in, in our ter- terms Ben and I would use, uh, sites of parallel worlds overlaps laps or intersects. Uh, as in the quantum physics idea of multiple worlds, which we think explains paranormal activity is far better than spirits and all this other stuff. And uh, in the Scorehill Stone Circle, I uh, it was very there were very odd feelings in there. I couldn't take an info in focus picture, but there were a line of people that came out from behind one of the tours, as they call the rock formations on. Uh, Dartmoor there. Uh, it looked just like they're from the Elizabethan period. Some were on horseback, and all I could think of was the English Civil War in the 1640s. Wow. And uh, I'm wondering if um, people have seen things of that kind from, as it were, other times or even the future or whatever, uh, in the vicinity of the site, uh, UFOs, anything of that kind that might indicate what we might call parallel world intersects. So other than just you know, funny orbs or things you pick up on the equipment, whatever, you know, whether it may mean something, may not. Have there been anyone that you, has there been anyone you're aware of who has um, had an apparitional experience, has seen anything, heard things of that kind, anything of that sort that you might associate with uh, Temple site of the past? Yeah, there were two gentle, uh, a couple gentlemen that came through, maybe about, it's probably like 10 to 12 years ago now, it's uh, time is flying by. And they were up during the day in the patty area, and they took a photograph. And I don't know if they saw it with their own eyes, but on the, when the picture was taken, it looks just like it's kind of a little bit misty, and it looks just like a person standing there with kind of a hood on. It was pretty neat. We put it on the website. I don't think it's up. It hasn't been up for a couple of years. But it's about the neatest thing I've seen up there. And, you know, is it, a, is it just a trick of light, you know, with a mist? And the, you know, is it, is it just something you can explain, or is it something you can't explain? But it did look pretty neat. 
it, it, and I can't identify the time period, you know, it was somebody from the Patty family or somebody, you know, some Native American from an area, but it was pretty cool. So we got it on the web, and uh, we had a picture of it on the wall, so people coming through saw it. And everybody thought it was pretty neat looking, because nobody knows what it is, you know. It's just like, what is that, you know? Is yeah. that something that's, you know, supernatural, or is it something that's just uh, some trick of light, you know? Yeah. I think that was probably yeah. the coolest one, yeah. 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 And I'm thinking, too, of um, there was... Uh, a, I was, the question is actually how many, you know, what, what books have been written about the site. And I'm thinking of, um, I wish I could remember his name, wonderful fellow. matter of fact, he wanted me to buy his publishing company at one point a number of years ago. Um, he wrote, uh, must have been a hundred books about various aspects of New England history, and they were in every touristy shop, including yours, um, for many, many years, and they probably still are. Uh, but I know that he, he wrote, I believe, a small book about, about uh, America's Stonehenge, but w- what other books have been written, either from a touristy standpoint or a scholarly standpoint, that at least mention the site that people can can go to and look up some more information? Oh. Yeah, that was Bob Cahill. Robert Bob Cahill, Cahill exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, right. That's he, right. He passed away. He was great. We met him when he. Oh, what a sweetheart! He distributed some of my books at one point too. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he was really good. And I'd like to say, go all over New England, Maine, wherever you go. Connecticut. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, his books. And we did it with us. He had the Summer Solstice Sunset on the front. It was uh, New England's Ancient Mysteries. And that book is a right. really phenomenal, you know, seller for... Actually, I think New England Cable, Cable News did a little uh, a little um, story on that, you know. And they, it did, like, half the book. And then they're going to do the other half at some later time. And I don't think they ever got back to it. But books have been written since 1907. Um, there's books... I don't know. We have probably hundreds of books that have been written. And some of them are super... Uh, um, science fiction books. In fact, a lady just uh, this summer, she had started writing a book in 2000, finally got the book together just recently after all these years. It was actually a mystery, and it was all about paranormal stuff. It was pretty, actually pretty well written, um, and I just finished it maybe a month ago. So, but this book's written about the site. My dad's book came out about little, uh, 12 years oh, ago. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and that book's pretty good, although I think we're going to, um, it needs to be updated a little bit. Uh, we found uh, many more quartz Stones on the Hill. My son Kelsey was out clearing trees during um, semester break uh, three years ago. That's when he was filmed for the Scott Walter show, America on Earth. But um, he was out there clearing the avenues that we started clearing in 67 just to reopen them up, and he found many of these large slabs that have been propped up artificially. And these are the ones that our stonemason looked at back in the 1970s and knew of maybe two dozen. We found probably another couple dozen all over the hill. Big slab stone raised with another stone, and then apparently they were shaping it using that percussion flaking technique. They're dressing the stone, and they had intentions to build a much larger complex. So what surprised us is the number of them out there. These guys had a much bigger complex they were going to build, and they had to haul these stones, a lot of cases, uphill to the site. You yeah. know? And it's quite a bit to drag it on a level or downhill, but dragging these multi-ton stones uphill is another thing. And we found all these... Um, I found what I think is a uh, the latest thing I found was a... Uh, effigy wall that looks like a snake. It runs about 30 feet, and uh, it has like a head, it has a tongue, and on the back side of it has this oval-shaped stone. It doesn't go anywhere. The wall was just there, and I went by it, you know, for years, and I finally got off. Um, I was riding my ATV through the woods, and I said, I gotta check this thing out. This thing seems, you know, it caught my eye this time after all these times going by it, and I, and I took pictures of it, and I sent it to uh, some other uh, investigators, and they think it's interesting, you know. It does look like it you know, it doesn't have any other purpose. It doesn't surround anything. It doesn't attach to another wall. It goes about 30, 31 feet. And it just it faces southwest. 
it's like almost reminds me of that Serpent Mound out in Ohio, you know? That's, uh, that's yeah. funny. I'm glad you brought that up because we don't have any more time, but I was going to bring up about the mound builders who did work oh, yeah. with mounds, yeah. of course, and yeah. certainly to the south, the Native Americans, the Incas and the Aztecs have built huge stone cities. So, I mean, who knows what connections there could be. So, well, Dennis, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you Indeed, after so yeah. many years, and uh, we're going to be coming up, and I'm going to be in touch with you off the air because we want to get in on some of this stuff if we could. Oh, and, uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks again. Uh, your website, one more time, if you would. Yeah, StonehengeUSA.com. And I want to thank all your listeners. And thank you both for having me on the show this evening. And if anybody has questions, please uh, give a call or send us. And we'll be glad to try to answer them for you. Great. And thanks so much. Great conversation. And I have great mem- memories of your dad, too. Indeed. So we'll oh, tribute to him. Nice. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you, you very so much, Dennis. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, folks. Uh, ben, I think you're starting the announcements tonight, I believe. Yeah. Indeed, I am. There is quite a bit going on on our calendar, and we're going to start off with on Saturday and Sunday, September 5th and 6th, which is just a few weeks away. We're speaking once again at the Exeter UFO it's Festival. It's a week from Saturday. It's a week from Saturday. Whoa, time, time flies. flies. You're having fun, exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, we are going to be speaking at the Exeter UFO Festival in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire, of all places. Our subject is Aliens versus Demons, Which is Which? Sounds kind of like a movie. Uh, the UFO yeah. Festival is a very fun no and town-wide event. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a town-wide event organized by the Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities. The other speakers will include the great Stan Friedman, along with Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, Bob Schroeder, and Jennifer Stein. Uh, you can visit www.exeterufofestival.org for more information. And on Thursday, September 24th, it's one month from today... Uh, we will join the Haunted House Diaries author, William J. Hall, for a joint book event and paranormal program at Hank's Restaurant in Brooklyn, Connecticut, uh, just Friday night. We were in Milford, Connecticut at the uh, release of that book at the Barnes & Noble there with, uh, with Bill and Shane Searway, our good friends. Uh, Hank's has great food. It'll be a lot of fun. It's a free event except for the food, and uh, that'll begin at 6.30 p.m. Indeed. So on Saturday, October 17th, uh, we will once again be speakers at the Greater New England UFO Festival, or UFO Conference, I should say. That's at uh, City Hall in Lemonster, Massachusetts. And we will uh, present a different variation on our subject, Aliens vs. Demons, which is which. Other speakers will include some uh, renowned experts familiar to our listeners. That's including Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, Mark D'Antonio, and William J. Hall. You can visit susantom.com slash ufo.html and all those links are at behindtheparanormal.com as well as our uh, over 600 free podcasts of all of our past shows from both ON 1240 and our four and a half year run on CBS Radio along with special shows and podcasts. And I've written a few books myself. You can find them at amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes and Noble Nook, etc., etc. But if you buy them directly at behindtheparanormal.com, they're online. I'll be happy to sign them for you, and you will help keep us help help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several of the charities, some of which we mentioned already, including USACares.org, CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing great things for youth out there, and locally, BuildersHelpingHeroes.org, doing great things for our veterans. There are two recent uh, books as well. I'll mention them quickly. They were they are, have local connections because of Joe Ferrier and ourselves. Uh, the Bell Witch Project contains that story and a few contributions that I made on historic paranormal cases here in New England, uh, including several cases we mentioned on the show. Also, UFO Repeaters, which has an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier, who had a uh, wonderful talk show on this station for 50 years or more, both available at Amazon.com. 
Alrighty. Oh, wow, we still have a little bit of time left. Well, maybe we can do the rest of the announcement. That's true. So next Monday, August 31st, uh, we'll be back at... Uh, we'll be back with UFO expert and broadcaster Alejandro Rojas uh, for a look at the ultra-weird UFOs. And uh, we know that many of our listeners listen to the show via podcast. Since the uh, podcast of our June 15th show with Alejandro was lost, well, it's not lost, it's on a CD, but it is in a format that is untranslatable, we shall say that, and we hope this show will make up for that. Well, if we ever get it back, we'll surprise so you'll, there, there will be two. Up. There will be two podcasts of him. If if we manage to, fix well, hopefully that. it was a good guess. And uh, before we go, I, I left little. Uh, I suppose I left a little extra time here at the end of the show for this. Uh, three years ago this month, we lost our good friend Joe Ferrier. Uh, translated, I believe it was on the 12th of August, uh, 2012. I believe so. Yeah. The 10th, and uh, we did several shows in honor of him, and he was a wonderful, wonderful friend and a great UFO expert in 1960, still well-remembered. And uh, our tribute to, to Joe is available on several podcasts on our website. Check those out as well. So we leave it this evening with a thought from the great American children's author, Dr. Seuss. Only you can control your future. He didn't make that rhyme or anything, but there it is. I'm Paul Eno. Uh, I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.